Hello, welcome to the Resilience Breakthrough Podcast. This is Christian Moore. And I'm Dave B. Singer. Uh, welcome back to the show. There are some pretty intense mental health issues that so many, uh, especially low SES, low economic standing individuals are facing right now because you know, you've know you got you've got a history of institutionalized racism, right? On top of that, you've got COVID-19, which disproportionately infects black and brown people. On top of that, you have this unemployment crisis Right. Where where the number of the people who are I mean, for middle class and upper class people to get through this has not been a huge deal. It's essentially been like an extended work from home. And, and I, I don't want to minimize the mental distress of having to live in, in general, quarantine in general, in general yeah, you know, yeah, and, and yeah. certainly not specifically. But I think if you took a look at the big, broad numbers, the numbers of people who are you know waiting in bread lines and collecting unemployment, they're, they're going to be in these communities. And then on top of that, to have this, you know, this incident with George Floyd, I just think I just think it was it was a it was the spark that lit the fire you know but i think there's so many underlying pent-up issues and that's why i'm so glad that we have on the show today a mental health professional and someone who is really working hard in the community to move the needle and my understanding is that this person actually helped you through a personal mental oh, health man. crisis when you first met her so yeah, yeah. Her, her name is kimberly boyd and she lives in Houston, Texas. And she, um, I think right now she's running three mental health agencies she has, and they're, they're just about to open up a fourth one, I believe in Mississippi. And um, just incredible family advocate, fighting for women's rights and equality. She's, um, she's the real deal. And um, she, she's a big advocate getting education as well. She had me come down and give a speech to some educated, some education people and mental health people there in the Houston area. And just literally maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes before the speech, I find out my wife has passed out. My son calls me and says they had to rush her to the hospital. An ambulance came, took her to the hospital. So, I mean, literally right before I speak, I'm feeling a full panic attack coming on. And there would be no one better to be with than to be with her in that moment, man. She was amazing to have Kimberly right there. And um, to help. Did you even know her? Yeah, yeah. I had met her, you know, a couple times before that. But um, it, it really kind of bonded us, helped us to connect, to have, you know, to go through something like that with someone. It um it really kind of solidified my connection with her and and, and and I learned man, man she'd be the greatest therapist in the world and she it was just an amazing person to have around me during a difficult time she um is one of the most empath empathic persons has tremendous empathy and understanding and um it was just like the safest person to be with. Well, that's fantastic. Let's just get her in here. Welcome to the show, Kimberly Boyd. Hi, y'all. Thank you so much for having me today. Christian, I do remember that day so well. Um, yeah, and you didn't miss a beat. And yes, it was very stressful, but you got up there and absolutely demonstrated resilience that day in yeah. front of everyone. Yeah, it's like a hypocrite that day. <laughs> resilience. That was, that was no, pushing you through. Wendy was fine, it. so the audience knows she was, she was fine <laughs> a couple of hours later. Yeah. Like, what was the problem? What happened? Yeah, I think I, I think it was just like um, low blood sugar or something. Oh, okay. It wasn't anything major. It was nothing that had lasting yeah, 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 repercussions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just, yeah. Right. Oh, that's good. Okay, well, glad Wendy's okay. Wendy's yeah. awesome. So, Kim, tell us about your community advocacy work. What are you up to? So, I have a private practice here in the 
Houston area with three different locations. And then I'm also the clinical supervisor for a nonprofit agency in our area that really primarily deals with victims of domestic violence and sexual abuse. So my private practice, which is separate, is Kimberly Boyd Counseling Center. And I'm fortunate and blessed to work with 40 amazing clinicians. And then at family time, that's the nonprofit agency in Humble. I have been affiliated with them since 1996. And no, we don't need to do any math on that. But I have been with them since 96. And now I don't provide one-on-one services to the clients there. But I do oversee the counseling program and provide supervision to the student and post-grad interns. It's an amazing organization in addition to the counseling center. And Family Time has two sites. So um, two different locations for counseling and then a shelter for individuals that are fleeing from domestic violence and human trafficking. Dealing with human trafficking and dealing with instances of domestic violence, I mean, that, that is painful enough. How, how has COVID affected that center's ability to operate? Oh, my gosh. So it's really, you know, it's both. It's such a challenge. And then at the same time, it's been incredible. The challenge has been we have kept the shelter open. So those that were in the shelter were able to stay at the shelter Um, But then for counseling services, the main offices, they had to be closed, but the therapists were able to do therapy through HIPAA-compliant platforms. However, what we were finding is that so many clients, they were just wanting to come into the office. First of all, it gave them a break from whatever it is that they're living in. And secondly, they were fearful because they never knew if somebody was outside the door listening. And so... That's been quite the challenge. Um, My biggest concern, and this is for both the nonprofit and my private practice, is the abuse rates. Um, Mm. They're skyrocketing. And there's, you know, we don't have eyeballs on these kids. Children are my passion. And so with them being out of school, I'm concerned, very concerned about moving forward. Kimberly, you're saying that when people are at home, sometimes they're worried who could be listening in on the counseling conversations. Is that what you were referring to a minute ago? Yes. In fact, I have several of my own clients that one woman in particular, she was in her closet and every few minutes she would say, okay, hold on, let me see if anybody's out there. And she'd crack her closet door. I could see her because we were doing a virtual session and she would crack her uh, closet door to see if her husband was on the other side. And so historically you were able to get these people out of the home and maybe into an office where they could see you, but now that they're having to do it from home, they have, Oh my gosh, I had not even thought about that that either. That's really complex safety issues. The visual of this, the visual, the picture of this woman, you know, peeking through the cracks of her closet to make sure her husband isn't listening into the counseling session while she tries to disclose, you know, these instances of abuse is just heartbreaking. Right. And the same has happened with teenagers. So many teenagers that were open and talking in session, and then they get on the on the virtual session, and it's like they're whispering, they're trying to 
be so careful oh, man. because they don't know if their parents are listening. Anyway, so yeah, it's been a challenge. Wow, that's intense. Are you changing, like, you know, do you have to talk in code? Like, are, are you changing your modality of practice around that issue? Like, how are you adapting to that? So for me personally, one thing that we can do on the platforms that we're using is we can send chat messages back and forth. Oh, okay. And so I have said, you know, code word, yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah, it is yeah, my um, dog that is, we've agreed to, and they can yeah, type that for me to call the police if necessary. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I've seen some of those memes like float around on Facebook. And I wonder if those didn't start with people like you who are using them in these situations. I was like, where is this coming from? Like people who would never have said something like that in a social right. media platform. A few weeks back, I said it was almost like a meme that was just tearing through the internet. You know, if, if you're in trouble, you know, tell me that you, you know, your dog is hungry and I'll call the police. And I was like, oh, wow. Where is, like, who thought to start doing that and why? And I, it sounds like we're hearing the genesis of some of that. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot more sense to me. Yes. Yeah. That's fascinating. And so um, what what are the other mental health issues that you're concerned about right now with, with these historic unemployment rates and kind of coming out of COVID where some places are opening and other places are not yet? So suicide rates, as I think we've all been told, they're all increasing. So suicide rates are up. I will say that in my private practice alone, as a whole, not just me, but all 41 clinicians as a whole have made more welfare check calls. So calling the police saying, I need a welfare check on this person. Here's the address over the past three months than we've done my entire career. In your entire wow, career. Wow. In my entire career, we have not had to make this many calls. And what's amazing, I know in Houston, man, you've dealt with the flooding. You've dealt with some major challenges in that city the last couple of years. And that, that, that says right. a lot right there. Yeah, and yes. not and like you said, not to date you, but like I graduated from high school in '96, and and you've been you've been with that shelter you said right, uh, right since '96, and so we yes. include you know the, the the Y2K thing, we include the crisis around that you know to, the, yeah. the 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 dot the dot com bubble yeah. bursting, 9/11, uh, the 2008 uh, financial crisis. So I mean, we we you know the the last 20 years have not been a picnic. So. Correct. To have this be the crescendo of all of that is certainly saying something. Right. Yes. Wow. Well, what, you know, what, what can people do? Is, is there, you know, I mean, there are only so many therapists. You only have so much, you know, bandwidth and your therapists only have so many caseloads that they can take on. Is there something that people in the community can do? I mean, we have, we have an, an audience of educators. Is there a way that we can lean on the larger community? What should people who are listening to this show do to help solve this problem right now? I think people need to reach out to others. Um, so my daughter is a senior in high school this year. Well, she'll, she's finished with high school now <laughs> in a weird way. But so one thing I will say about our school district is those teachers. So the kids are supposed to log in for their Zoom classes. I'm telling you, I am so impressed. These teachers, if a child or teenager, whatever, has not logged into the class, after three days, these teachers are starting to call the students, not the parents, 
they call the students. And if they aren't able to reach the parents, some of these teachers are going to the houses to check on these kids. And I'm, I'm like, oh, oh my cool. gosh, thank y'all so much. But if everybody could reach out, to reach out to five people a day, that's a lot of contact. Just to say, hey, I'm here. The situation is maybe it's a bummer, but I'm here just to say hello. And to be um, clear, you're saying reach out directly to the students, especially because in some cases there could be a problem. And if you reach out to the parent, you're going to, you know, you're going to get blown off or, you know, you, you may not come in contact with the issue if you're not trying to contact the student directly. Yes. And if you sometimes when you call the parent, it can actually escalate whatever abuse is occurring in the home. And so I do think reaching out to students is important as society as a whole. I think if each person would reach out just to five people, I say just, and I'm not trying to minimize, but five people a day, just to say hello can make all the difference in someone's life. I think that's a great challenge. Seriously, Kim, that's awesome. And I'm going to take that on. I'm I'm, I'm definitely going to do that. You know, I know before COVID, loneliness was a huge epidemic, you know, in in the U.S., the the um, past Surgeon General you know, just wrote a book about it, and you know he went around the country to um, figure out what physical needs people needed, and what kept coming up is, is loneliness. Um, what are you seeing in your practice related to, to that battle, that challenge? For students, it's missing their friends. And so many kids that we were seeing that were brought in originally with behavior issues in school, which that's a whole another topic for me, but um, being brought in, like bring them in, fix my kid. They're having trouble in school. And so those kids that didn't like school, like they're the ones that say they're always in trouble. They're like, I just want to go back to school. Um, it's a huge problem. So I think loneliness has probably only escalated for our society. Really? Are you hearing adults talk about it? it- in, in your sessions? Is that coming yes. up at all? Yeah. Okay. Yes. And I think what I am hearing, even where there's not domestic violence, couples that are home together, like that's just not how our society works. Yeah, Somebody yeah. goes to work or they both yeah. leave the house. You get a break from the home and all the stuff that in the home. And so couples are arguing more now. I'm not saying to the level of domestic violence, but it's, that whole idea of enough already. I just need a break from my spouse. Yeah, yeah that, that personal space is a big deal. <laughs> it yeah, is. Yeah. yeah, we always had kind of our work families, or, you know, and, uh, and and then we had our home families. We had kind of different social circles that we, you know, kind of connected with, at least most of us. And uh, and now it's like we've just, for, for a while there, you know, and, and for some people still, it's just this one group of people and not seeing anybody else and compound on top of that. Like, you know, I, I just, had, I, I don't know about you. Like at some point I just had to kind of stop watching the news because it was oh, so, yeah. it was just, it was just stressful all the time yes. to watch like the play by play of what's happening around the world. I just had to tune it out at some point and just go, I'm just going to catch the, you know, NPR summary at the end of the day. And that's about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, yes. It's been interesting. My, my teenagers have been locking themselves in their bedrooms. but usually I'll be like, all right, um, you can't lock your door that much. And, but it's been interesting. I've been a little more patient with it because I can tell it's kind of their individual time, their individual space. And so I think um, 
as this continues and we spend a ton of time together as you know and same people under the same roof we're going to have to figure out how to have those boundaries how to ha have some space are you um talking about some of that in your therapy sessions we are yes and i also i encourage people to try to keep your routine that you had before covid keep that routine even though you're working from home still get up get dressed as if you're going to work because it does help the whole mindset and how you view the day and your sense of worth really so um that is something that i am working with people on is just maintaining the routine they already had so you're saying i should take off the sweatpants take a shower and quit being so stanky that's what you're saying <laughs> yeah, you gotta engage that's all awesome. so you do some amazing advocacy work i'm 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 so impressed by it and i and by the way i just want to plant a little flag i, I did notice that you said that you had a whole you know, a, a whole kind of conversation we could have about children and the schools kind of handing you off children and saying, fix my child because they're having problems. Right. So I want, I, I do want to come back to that. But in the meantime, I'd really like to understand how you got involved in all of this from a personal narrative perspective. Like Kim, what's your story and why, do, why do you care? So what I always thought was my story, uh, I grew up in a home where there was domestic violence and lots of alcohol. And so that's what I thought my story was, that I wanted to help people know that you can choose a different life. You, abuse does not need to be tolerated, all of that. I was at a conference probably seven years ago, and I was in this class in a breakout session, and the person up front was talking about mindfulness. The name of the workshop was Cracked Vases Are Still Beautiful. So I had a colleague sitting next to me. Her name is Paige. And so we're there and we're, our eyes are all closed. The room is silent. And he's walking us through this mindfulness exercise. And it hits me like a freight train. And so I kind of nudged Paige. I didn't kind of, I really nudged Paige next to me. And I said, it has nothing to do with my parents. And she's like, Kimberly, be quiet. You just and said so, that out loud in the middle of yes, the session? Yes, out loud. Yes, yeah. room full of people. Wow. Uh, of course I did. And so she's like, Kimberly, I'm like, sorry, but it has nothing to do with my parents. But it came to me. I was probably four years old. We were still living in Fort Worth in that area. And two doors down, there was a boy and sisters, um, but I remember it vividly standing on my front porch and the sisters running out of their house screaming for help because their father was beating the, the brother, the son. Oh. That memory, um, I mean, I knew about my neighbors. I've had those memories. But my that day in that workshop, I was like, yes, my parents definitely played a part. But my very first experience with abuse or domestic violence was that neighbor two doors down. Wow. So fast forward, growing up, um, like I said, home full of domestic violence, which is so interesting when I look back, I'm still in the same community that I grew up in and people didn't know. Like <laughs> my childhood was such a textbook of, oh, all the secrets and everything hiding. People had no idea. And so... Um, we kept all the family secrets. 
my parent, my brother was born when I was in the fourth grade. And of course, after that, my dad seemed to even go off the rails even more. My mom finally filed for divorce my freshman year of college. You know what's so crazy about this idea of domestic abuse? I think oftentimes, like, you know, I, I think of a, of, a, of a father who decides to hit his sons, but not necessarily his daughters. And I think that the idea there is this kind of intergenerational uh, concept that like, if, you know, if, if you want someone to be tough and you want them to grow up to be a man, then you have to hit them. You know, you have to toughen them up a little bit. Right. And, uh, and, and obviously that can spiral out of control. But if you think about that same, let's just take that same idea of hitting children and, and let's just, let's just apply it to like hitting an adult. Right. Like, so if I'm just in the room with, uh, with Christian here and I'm like, you know what, Christian's acting kind of wimpy. I'm just going to punch him a few times and see if I can't toughen him up a little bit. It's like, I would go to prison, right? I would go to jail for assault, but somehow it's okay. Quote unquote, okay you know, to, to like hit our children. And we think that somehow that's going to create a positive result. I, I'm not saying we, I, cause I don't think that, I don't think you think that right. none of us think that, no. but there are people who have been teaching each other that, you know, through, right. throughout generations that like, Hey, if you, you know, it's, it, I mean, it's in the Bible, right? Like spare the rod, spoil the child. It's in the Bible. It's been with us for a very long time. Right. Yeah. Generational abuse is um, no joke. <laughs> that's that's no joke that, that's um a cycle that has to be broken a lot of um speeches i give i'll say hey my greatest accomplishment you know isn't doing why i try or some this resilience work my greatest accomplishment is that my two kids you know cooper and carson have never been you know, physically abused I- i'm more proud right. of that than anything in my life and um that's uh but it's 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 about growing up in a home where there was some abuse it's um been something that um it it took me years to have kids because i was afraid i was like oh man Uh, just how i was raised some of the challenges i dealt with man to to bring kids into that will be be really really difficult and i you know i I know i've devoted my life to creating safety for children because of that and kimberly sounds like um similar to you you and me have um different but but similar passions that have come out of that um so i'd love to hear more about um how you kind of transitioned and stuff. So you, you grew up there and then you decided to go to college and, and become a therapist and t- take us a little more on your, on your personal journey. So one question that was always asked as far back as I can remember was, Kimberly, are you ever going to amount to anything? And so as a child and honestly growing up, I never thought of that as a negative thing. Um, it wasn't until I was became a therapist and anyway, doing all these studies, I was like, you know, that really wasn't a very nice thing to say. The other question that I was always followed up with is, what are we going to do with you? Maybe we should just throw you in the trash can. Again, growing up, I didn't think anything about it. Looking back, like I would never say that to my child or any of my children. Who said your dad would say that or your mom said that? To you? It was my dad and my grandfather, which is so bizarre because... Really, my grandparents, um, all four of them, on bo- you know, my grandmother and grandfather on both sides, treated me like I was a princess other than those comments. Huh. And that was on my dad's side of the family. But those so, words, like those words that they said to you, those are like punches. Those are like punches right. to your spirit or to your emotions. Right. But I think what it did. So, yes. 
completely agree with you. And at the same time, I think what it did made me determine to prove what I could do. Mm. When Christian talks about street resilience, I'm like, I think I've based my whole life on that. (laughs) I can see that with you. I can see that. Yeah. Ask me if I'm going to amount to anything, and I'll just show you that I will amount to something. Um, Yeah. So when we were going off on a tangent here, when I was trying to find a location for this, the Heights office that we just opened, oh my gosh, try to find a location and talking with realtors. And so my realtor that I had for this lease, she's also a female. And so I picked the place. And I was like, oh, I love this spot. And so we made an offer and the guy, the leasing person, I don't even know what he's called at this point. Well, anyway, he basically said to my realtor, well, how does she think she's going to be successful? I was like, oh my oh, gosh, what sir. kind of question is that? That's crazy. <laughs> oh, well, like sir. why, like why in the world, like how is that an appropriate question? Was he just sexist? Like, why is he asking I, this? So I have no idea. It was shocking. It was so shocking. So they asked for all these financials. We did it. And he's like, but how is this possible? And I was like, you know what? You are not the person for me, and I am not the person for you. Come to find out, his wife is also a clinician. I don't know her. I don't even know her name. But he ended up telling my realtor that his wife is a clinician. And I thought, oh, my goodness. I'm going to say an extra prayer for her. um, For his negativity. So going back to street resilience, because then I'm like, I'm just going to find another spot. And we're going to move forward without that particular office space. And it ends up, we are in a beautiful building now, and it's great, and I love it. <laughs> hey, that's awesome. That's um, a great example. That's a great example of using disrespect as a reason to push through. Yes. And I think that that's what I did. I think those comments from my dad and my grandfather, I think that was a huge motivator for me when I didn't even realize it. I, well, and, and one thing that you're going back to here is, you know, some, some people can help you, you know, we, on this, on this podcast, we've explored this idea that sometimes people can tell you a truth about yourself. And if you believe it, it becomes true, whether that's positive or negative. And then right. sometimes someone tells us something about ourselves and we choose not to believe it. Right. And that can also be either a positive or a negative outcome. Right. So someone could say something nice about us and we could be like, well, that's not true. I don't believe that about myself. Or in your case, someone could say something negative about you and you could find motivation in trying to disprove it. But all of all of this is really coming back to mindset. And, you know, one one thing that I really loved on your website, Kimberly Boyd Counseling Center, is it said that you teach people new skills to change their thoughts, feelings and behavior. And I thought, what are those? What are those skills that can change your thoughts? So I think for me, first of all, is a daily practice of gratitude. I think that I truly believe, and this has helped me so much grow as a person and as a clinician, but starting each and every day with the gratitude practice can absolutely change your thoughts and your perspective for each day. So that, number one, I do believe. Um, 
as far as changing your thoughts, it is about, and again, going back to Christian, talking about flipping the switch, it is. And then having this understanding, I was at a women's conference not too long ago with my daughter and recognizing that life isn't happening to me, but life is happening for me. Um, the past two years have been incredibly challenging for me. And at the same time, have given me such an opportunity to really take a hold of my life and take it in the direction that I absolutely want. It has brought such clarity. And when I say that, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh, yesterday, two-year mark yesterday of cancer-free. Wow, wow, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, God, two God, years I didn't even realize that. Wait, you were diagnosed two years ago initially. I was I was diagnosed in March two years ago, oh, okay, okay. but then and surgery May 31st. So I'm considered cancer free. Cancer free. So you've had your follow-ups and, you know, yes. uh, awesome. Congratulations. That's incredible. But it, I was able to, or I've been able to, with a lot of work, um, flip the switch and to really realize it's not happening to me. It is happening for me. So getting diagnosed with breast cancer and Bernice, my best friend, getting diagnosed with brain cancer, that really made me take a look at how do I spend my time? And each day, who am I spending my time with? What am I working on? Like, what kind of legacy do I really want to leave for my children? And for the people around me, like all of my loved ones, I, my kids are primarily come first. So, and I've made huge adjustments. And so not to get rid of people or friends, but to, I really identify who am I spending my time with and how can I bring joy and gratitude to each and every situation? Awesome. Awesome. Um, That's some beautiful. days yeah, it's sorry, pretty challenging to even do that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you know, what's so powerful about what you said, um, you know, that this is happening for me. Um, you know, when we're, when we're young, I think we just have this idea that we're invincible, like we'll live forever. You know, death just seems like this, you know, I've got forever, you know, I've got, I've got, I've got 50 years, I've got 40 years. And then you have this run in with something like cancer, which out of the blue can threaten your life in a way that you do not seem see coming. So did that, did that experience kind of shift your perspective, help you realize your own mortality and realize like the preciousness of each moment? Like each day is like this gift, right? There's only so many of them. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, it did. Well, and then the other thing, um, my kids have been super resilient as well. I have a set of twins. So our oldest is 20, our twins are 19, and then our daughter is 17. Our twins, one of them, the twins were born three months premature due to a house fire, and I did not manage my stress well after our house burned. And so they decided this woman is too stressed out. We're, we're going to make our way into this world. <laughs> so they did. Um, but Harrison, one of the twins, he's had some major health issues throughout his life. He does have hydrocephalus, which is fluid on the brain and has had, we found out when he was two years old. And so from two years old until 19, he had only had four brain surgeries, which is amazing. 
Well, then in December of 2019, his senior year in high school, his shunt had stopped working and he was in the hospital for two weeks and had three brain surgeries within that two week period of time. And we weren't sure that he was going to make it. So in addition to my diagnosis, Bernice's diagnosis, and then Harrison and watching him really fight. And then when he finally was discharged from the hospital, he had to learn how to talk. He, his speech was not right. He had to basically learn how to do a lot of things again and watching him fight so that he could still graduate on time and start the University of Mississippi the that next semester after graduation. I was like, okay, I need to step up my game. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It's like you, you so. totally, you, you kind of take all these things for granted. I can walk, I can talk, I can function, you know, right. until, until, until you, you lose them or someone else loses them that you love and you go, Oh wow, wait a minute. Like I'm taking, taking all of these things for granted. They are not a given. They could be taken right. at any time. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Which kind of goes back to, you know, you, you mentioned one of those skills, which I loved is a gratitude practice. Um, you know, I, I've been practicing mindfulness meditation for a long time and, uh, you know, lately it's kind of peaked. It's kind of, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm just hitting a plateau. Maybe I need to press through it, but I've been thinking about, you know, incorporating some other things into it. And I, I think a gratitude practice would be, would be awesome, would be an awesome addition to it. So here's the, um, kicker for that in order for that gratitude practice not really to make it stick. I should not say in order to make it stick, but to make it more mm, powerful for you is to write at least five things down every single day, but write it with your pen, like with your hand, mm. old timey yeah. pen and paper, yeah. writing it down. <laughs> and it, it makes a huge difference. I will do it. You have a commitment for me. I will do it. Okay, good. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So that commitment from you and Christian's going to reach out to five people every day. And Christian, you don't have to call him, shoot him a quick text. Just, okay. Hey, thinking about you. It's real quick. Right, it's no, quick. I, I will make, man, you're doing some great therapy for I me know. and Dave. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Hey, me and Dave need all the help we can get right now. And, um, you know, I've spent the last, you know, 10 years pretty intensely, you know, studying um, resilience and your life is an incredible, incredible example of resilience, what your family's been through, you know, with cancer, going through the fire, um, being an entrepreneur, the, the entrepreneur work you do is, you know, you're a social entrepreneur is absolutely amazing. And, um, you know, I look at your childhood, all the different stuff you've been through, going through cancer, going through all these different things. Um, you know, you're someone I know that, um, how do I say this, but you, you carry yourself with tremendous um, compassion and, and someone with tremendous dignity. And um, you're a powerful person. When you walk into a room, you, you light up a room. I know I've talked to some of your therapists over the years and some of your interns, and, and they love and respect you greatly. Um, how, how do you keep the, um, when you go through so much pain, how do you keep the attitude of um, just there's no better word than love, but you, you're someone who exudes love for so many people. How do you keep that love in the forefront, Kimberly? Um, I think of it for myself as the ripple effect. So even when 
dark things have happened. I say dark. When I was diagnosed with cancer, that was a rough time. We had just sold our house. Like all these things were happening at the same time. So I have choices to make, right? I can either sit in a corner and cry about the fact that I've been diagnosed with cancer and all the stuff that's going to come with that. I can certainly take that route and there's nothing wrong with that. And I did do my share of crying. And at the same time, I ask myself, Kimberly, what is most important? Like, what do you believe you were put on this planet to do? And I do think I was put on this planet to serve others. It happens to be children are my passion. With that comes families. And so when I ask myself that question, so you're going to have to be off of work for two weeks because of cancer or whatever it is, which I think is super frustrating to have to take off work, by the way, um, for that. But anyway, (laughs) but I have to ask myself, like, what do you believe you're put on this planet to do? And if I really do believe that, then I have to take care of myself and show up well for myself so that I can show up well for others. So I do. I think of it as this ripple effect of of what happens with self-care for a long time. I'm going to, I'm going to say this, that that is not how my mindset was, or maybe it was, but I was told by outside sources, again, coming from family of origin that I was selfish. And so for a long time, I would apologize for different things. If it was, I didn't want certain people around that were using drugs or whatever. And I would apologize because otherwise I'd be told I was selfish. And I've come to realize that's not being selfish. I can only serve others well if I look at my own life and take care of my own stuff. And so I don't even know if I'm answering your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what you're talking about right now is that self-care piece. And what's what's interesting to me is that, um, you know, you in a a mindfulness session early on, you kind of had a big realization. I kind of want to go back to that moment. Now that we know a little bit more of your history, when you Uh said out loud in the middle of the session, (laughs) it's not about my parents. What did you mean by that? I had always thought that I had gotten into the field and this commitment to people in situations where there is domestic violence. I always thought I did that because of my parents and because of my childhood so that I could help people have a different life. And so when I had that memory of the little boy two doors down, that's when I realized it wasn't just about them. Like I'm doing this work, I think, for a bigger cause than just because of my parents. Um, I am grateful for the childhood that I had. I will say that. And I mean that with every bit of my being because of the relationship that my parents had and because of the behaviors, it showed me exactly what life I did not want to have. And I really and truly have created the life that I want and I love it. I love my life, but it took me a long time to figure that out and to get there and not want to apologize for it when ultimately I don't have anything to apologize for. I've worked really hard 
That's right. By using street resilience. All right. Yeah. You've overcome a lot of adversity. You had a vision. You know, you wanted, you set out into this world to do something good. You, You were told not a teacher. Okay, fine. A therapist. And then you became a social entrepreneur. And not only are you delivering therapy, but you've learned how to scale your abilities through 40 other people or more in a way that takes these concepts that you've learned and you've developed and get them out to thousands of people instead of just the, you know, handful of people that you'd be able to see personally. I mean, that's commendable. You've accomplished a lot, Kimberly. You're a rock star. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. It's so interesting to hear you say that. And I talked to therapists about this in the practice. Um, People have asked me, they still ask sometimes, like, Kimberly, how do you do what you do? Or after the fire, Kimberly, how did you ever get through that? And I just haven't ever... Like I, you just do when the twins were born and all the things that were going on with them being in the hospital. And I was like, you, I, you just do what you've got to do. And I do think that that's been my mindset always also is do whatever you've got to do. Everything is figure outable. Just figure it out. One thing that I am learning more and more still after all these years of practice is it's okay. And actually it's absolutely necessary to take a moment to reflect and and to congratulate yourself. And I think if more people would have a daily reflection period. So I think I talked about the morning piece of gratitude. But that evening reflection has also changed my life. About not always about, oh, no, what did I not get accomplished today? So I'm already thinking about tomorrow. Because really, I don't know that tomorrow is going to come. Like we definitely have figured that out. It's so, so true, Kim, and Kimberly. And you know, what's so interesting about that is, I mean, you can almost think of the metaphor of sleep as like every day you die, right? And then yeah. you like wake up in the morning, you're like reborn. It's a chance. Like every day is this weird thing that's set up in life where you kind of like die every day and then wake up in the morning, you get a chance to do it all over again. It's almost like we're living Groundhog Day, if, you, if you're familiar <laughs> with that movie, but all of us yeah. are living it like every day, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So that. So that piece in the evening, what's been so life-changing for me, used to, I would think about, oh gosh, I forgot to do this, or oh, I meant to do that, and all those things as I was trying to go to sleep at night. So my brain, I was not even giving myself a chance to slow down to go to sleep. Um, And we all know that our body heals and our brain resets while we're sleeping, like you were just saying. So to not give myself that opportunity was definitely going to end up affecting my health over the long term. So having the reflection piece of, okay, maybe I do need to acknowledge the things that I forgot to do. Although that doesn't happen as much now because of the morning routine I've put into place. But then also each day writing down what are three things that I did well today. And maybe it's that I, one thing I did well is I didn't text five people, but I texted six people. So doing that one more thing. Okay, what's one more thing? But giving ourselves credit, because I don't think people do that. I know I have not always done that. Um, But it's been helpful. And it's not about tooting your horn or bragging or being selfish. That's not what it's about. It's about acknowledging this world has got some stuff happening and people are hurting. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm constantly talking to my kids now about they have to 
believe in themselves, take care of themselves, celebrate themselves, or other people won't. It's just a natural magnetic thing between human beings. We love being around people who um, we're drawn to people who, who have that self-respect, who, who are taking care of themselves because we, there's almost a natural leadership that comes from, you know, from people who are doing that. And, and I know a lot of my life, I never reflected on the positive things or the, the accomplishments, you know, that right. I've, I've done in my life. You know, I've, cause I'm always on to the next thing. I'm on to the next thing. And I think it really has an impact on our self-esteem if we stop wow. at the end of the day and reflect about the things we accomplish. You know, and I know this morning I woke up, I had a couple things that I wanted to work on and do. And I, I kind of put that out into the universe. I was working on something put out into the universe. And um, I, I had an idea. It's the craziest thing. I'll tell you a quick story. I woke up this morning. I had an idea about something I wanted to work on. I worked on it. I shared it with someone. And then they said, Christian, will you come with us? We want you to share this with Congress <laughs> to go to Washington, nice. D.C. with them. And it just happened a couple, like an hour and a half ago. And I was thinking, you know, this morning when I woke up, right when I got out of bed, I worked on this project. I thought about it. I worked through it in my head. And then five, six hours later, they're asking me to share the concept with Congress. And so <laughs> that, that blew me out of the, the, the water. And I just think... Um, that we have to, um, I, I love that, that reflection. And then, you know, if we can, when we, when our head hits the pillow at night, if we can say to ourselves, you know, what did I do right today? How can I do more of that tomorrow? That solution focused approach. Um, yeah. it, it creates a momentum. It's like a snowball rolling down a mountain. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, I, I just watching you go through all these crises the last few years, Kimberly and, and seeing, um, your confidence, like, like a couple times, I don't know if you know this, when you were, um, in the hospital and I, I remember like, I think I was texting the hospital. You were like, <laughs> I would just wish I could go back to work. Okay. And I'm thinking to myself as you're someone who cares about, it, I'm like, man, why doesn't she just stop and really take care of herself? But I could tell what was pushing you was relational resilience. It, it was out of love and respect for your employees, for your clients, that yes. relational resilience, man, you are a highly, one of the most relational, resilient people. You're motivated by those relationships with, with other people, I, almost more than anybody I've ever met. I, I'd love to hear some of your feelings about relational resilience. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So when you spoke earlier about surrendering the one up, oh, my gosh, I absolutely love it. I've said this to you before, Christian, I want everyone, I've talked about Texas, like I want everyone in Texas to know why try and the resilience breakthrough. I just do. Um, <laughs> I'm still determined to make that happen. Hey, we'll, we'll do it. We'll do it. Hey, this is helping you beat on this podcast is helping. <laughs> um, but I absolutely do. I think that establishing the relationship, I mean, that's like the number one thing in counseling, right? So when talking to interns, like what's the most important thing to have happen in that first session? And you have to establish the relationship. Like these people do not know you and they're going to come in and share their world. You have to have a relationship. And so I realize parents, you know, they need to guide their children. But I believe that there does need to be this mutual respect and understanding with their child. The goal of parenting, in my opinion, is to raise these individuals so that they can make healthy and independent choices when they're an adult. So if I was run over by a car tomorrow 
and my children were left here, could they make a decision? And so, yeah, I'm very much about the relationship and kind of more of a logical approach (laughs) than a power and control approach. I don't think that that's helpful at all. Do you think those relationships heal you? Because when I was engaging with you a little bit when you were literally in the hospital bed, it seems like those relationships um, were somewhat healing for you. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I just... I, I just never seen anybody want to get back to work as much as much as you did. Yeah, why did you? Why did you? Why were you so driven to get back to work? Why didn't you just take the time? You, you've, you've obviously talked and thought a lot about self care. So, mm-hmm. but it, but from what Christian is saying, maybe you weren't practicing what you preach. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> hey, she wanted. I, to get, I've never seen anybody want to get back at work that hard when they're dealing with that level of a crisis. So, uh, but I'm wondering if that. I guess what I'm proposing this bringing this up is, was that part of your healing? Yes. I think that for me, that's part of my self-care. Really, I absolutely love what I do. I am so passionate about the work that I do, and I love humans, that I do think that that was part of my healing. Sitting around, oh my gosh, uh, yeah. Now, with that said, I play just as hard as I work. (laughs) I love being at the lake. And even at the lake, I'm probably 90% of the time entertaining and have other people around us. I love it. I love being with people. Um, So, yeah, I do think that that was part of my healing to be able to get back to work and, and just be in community with others, whether it be the people that I work with, so the colleagues or with clients. Being in community, just in community as a whole, is probably what I live for. So you know, you know what what helps. I I, I think. Um, so I, I think part of being in community it helps you kind of draw it draws you out of yourself, right? And yes. so when you're engaged with another person, it's like you know the, the mind the mind is this vessel that must be filled. And either it's filled with your engagement with others or it's filled with your engagement with yourself. And if I'm alone, I'm kind of eaten alive by my own thoughts a little bit sometimes, you know what I mean? And uh, it's so interesting to hear you talk about it being okay to say like, hey, I did a pretty good job today. Like I texted six people instead of five. I'm awesome. High five self. (laughs) Like your inner dialogue is so different than mine. My inner dialogue is like, I'll be like, hey, I did a pretty good job on that. And then I'll be like, you're such a narcissist. I'll be like, you're (laughs) So like, you're so self-absorbed. I just constantly am like criticizing myself. Hey, Kimberly, hold on. I I didn't mean to interrupt you, Dave. I'm about to do an intervention here. Now I'm Uh about to do an intervention. Uh Uh-oh. Since I have one of the greatest therapists on this podcast (laughs) with us. Hey, Kimberly, Dave beats himself up really, really hard, right? Like, like tough on himself. I mean, he does incredible work. He, um, he, when he puts his mind to get something done, man, it's, it's like nobody I've ever seen. But again, when he has those um, down moments, when he, if he has a moment to think, he can be really emotionally hard on himself. You guys know I'm going to cut you, all of this out. No, 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 no. <laughs> dude, we, we, got some, we got some real things. So me, me and Kim, we just switched into um, – we're co-therapists right now. So, Kim, let's – and I know you can't you know, sit down with him, but what would be your two or three things – that you would help Dave with um, that uh, that self talk that's so hard. And the reason why I'm I'm kind of making a a whole thing on this here a little bit, making a big deal about it is I know tons of listeners out there 
are battling with the same thing that when they're they those quiet moments, um, you know, we, we, again, as we talked about abuse, we can have self-abuse and how we treat mm-hmm. our, ourselves. So w- w- what's your advice for Dave a little bit there? Let's give Dave some intervention, Kim. So first of all, just to let you off the hook a little bit is it took me a long time and I still have to challenge myself to not do the very thing that you're doing. So it, yeah, it's not an easy task to um, <laughs> get over. But what I will say is to start asking yourself, okay, so what proof do you have? Yeah, you did a good job. And oh man, you're such a narcissist. What proof do you have that you're a narcissist? And so I would ask you to start really challenging those thoughts. And and if you don't give yourself credit, who is going to? And then also to go back to thinking about the bigger picture. What is it that your ultimate goal is? What is your passion? Where is that motivation? Where does it come from? And whatever it is, I'm going to say serve others. Okay, so to serve others, if I don't give myself the credit and I end up being burned out, I'm not going to be able to serve others. And so the very thing that I believe I was put on this planet to do, I'm not even going to do it because I'm afraid to give myself the credit. You mentioned that you have a son. And so I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that I think you are the type of father that would want your son to congratulate himself and to reflect daily on his whatever that he's done well for the day. But even if he didn't do something well, I think you're probably a dad that would say, okay, so it wasn't like that, but what did you learn from it? Meaning, what can you do differently next time? Not to shame him, but just to think bigger picture. So with that said, when you have negative self-talk, then I really want to challenge you to say, okay, Dave, if this were your son saying those very things, would that be acceptable to you? The negative things. And if it's not, then hold on to that role model, role model mindset Because whatever you are saying to yourself, that negative talk, it does end up coming out. Our brain starts believing the words that we're saying. And so it will come down. And then that trickle down effect is going to be on your child. It's, it's so true. And, you know, they're the, one of the most painful things I experience as in my role as a father is when, you know, so for example, like as part of that little party we had last night, my son, he's, he's a music producer and you know, he's 15 years old. He's taught himself how to use this program called logic on the Apple Mac. He's, he plays the piano. He's, and he's really talented. And uh, in fact, maybe I'll use one of his songs as the intro for this podcast. So you can hear nice. it. Okay. So I will do it, but he did not want to play his song for the group. He was so embarrassed. And he just, he just, he's never finished the song because he's so embarrassed by it, but it's really good. It's, I'm not, I'm not just saying as a dad, like you'll hear it. It's good. Yeah. It's objectively good. But I watch him torture himself about with these negative thoughts. And I go, this is useless. Why are you doing this to yourself? And I need to just hold up a mirror and say, well, where do you think he's getting it from? <laughs> Oh my goodness. You're so good, Kim. We're going to have to Burley? pay you for this Kimberly, podcast, how much Kimberly. Do we we're going to owe you, owe you my man, goodness. these breakthroughs. Man. Oh, that's so funny. So you are yes. being, this one of the top therapists, I believe, in the state of Texas, and you are getting for free some powerful intervention. Well, but, I can certainly see why. Hey, Kim, if anybody wants to support the work you're doing, is is there anything they can do to get a hold of you? Or which kind of, do you have any call to action or anything? 
the people can um, to find you or to connect with you? So to connect with me, probably the easiest way is through the website, which is KimberlyBoyd.net. Um, that's probably the easiest way. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. You're the best. You're the best. You're always an inspiration to talk to.